January. The month of January, as you probably know, is named after the Roman god Janus. The Janus who looked in two different directions. One that looked back and another face that looked forward. For many people, January is the month in which we look back at the past year and look forward and plan for a new one. Uh, For many people in January, uh, they take this opportunity to look back at the so-called best of things. And so at this time of year, we can look back at folks who make lists of the best TV shows, the best movies, the best novels, the best music. But even in our assessments of these things, uh, looking back, they can take different directions. We can look at them in two different ways. Uh, There's consensus about some things, but there is disagreement about others. Uh, Last Sunday, I saw something interesting in the New York Times opinion page. Uh, One at the top was a headline for Ross Douthat's column, which read, The Decade of Disillusionment. And right below it was a headline for Nicholas Kristof's column, which read, This has been the best year ever, again. Now the gist, if you'll bear with me, the gist of Douthat's column was that the 2010s were what he calls the decade of disillusionment. And to put that name in perspective, he says that the the 1990s, think back to the 1990s, 1990s, he says, was the decade of hubris, with the United States, the dominant global power, and the rise of digital technology, that we would make the world a better and safer place. But then the 2000s arrived, and in the 2000s, he calls the the decade of nemesis, nemesis, which was the result of our 1990s hubris, and it resulted in the dot-com bust, the housing bust, the Great Recession, and the war in Iraq. And then Douthat says we had the era of disillusionment, the decade we just ended, in which he says the knowledge we gained mattered more than the new events we experienced. We didn't experience the kinds of trauma of the 2000s, but we did experience a sense of alienation, crisis, and betrayal, which emerged from more backward glances than new disasters. And he said that this era, the decade that has just passed, exposed the depth of problems without suggesting plausible solutions. They didn't produce movements or leaders equipped to translate disillusionment into programmatic action despair into spiritual renewal, the crisis of institutions into structural reform. That's Douthat's take on the last decade. Now, Christoph, on the other hand, he says that building on the success and progress of the past decade, 2019, 2019 was probably the year in human history in which children were least likely to die, adults were least likely to be illiterate, and people were least likely to suffer excruciating and disfiguring diseases. He mentions that only 10% now of the world's population currently experience extreme poverty, while 1991, 42% of the world lived in extreme poverty. He also points out that diseases like polio and leprosy have declined, and that we have, he says, turned the, turned the corner or tied on AIDS. Now, both Christoph and Douthat look back and have different takes on the last decade. Uh, I don't believe that uh, Christoph would entirely disagree with Douthat or that Douthat would entirely disagree with, with uh, Christoph. 
But both of their takes on the last decade resonate with me, and neither of them, though, know what the next decade will be like. It's an open book filled with blank pages. Who knows what to expect? Now, the gospel we have today for the second Sunday after Christmas and the first Sunday of the new year is not what we would typically expect as a Christmas-like story. Normally, we associate Christmas with the warm glow of a nativity scene with all the characters gathered around, just like the one we have over here. We have baby Jesus and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the wise men. But instead, today, we have a description of Joseph who, after having been warned by an angel to flee to Egypt because Jesus' life was in danger, he took Mary and Joseph to that nearby country until after King Herod had died. Matthew says that this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now what today's reading leaves out is the cause of the threat to Jesus' life. Of course, it is King Herod, but Matthew says that after having been tricked by the wise men, King Herod was infuriated and had all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, he had them killed. We left that out of today's reading. But outside of the Gospel, according to Matthew, there's no record that this actually occurred. But it would have not have been outside of Herod's character. It would have been entirely in, entirely in Herod's character to do such a thing. He was known as a brutal ruler, and Herod's actions only showed the links that some people will take to preserve the established order and to hold on to their power. Now, Herod represents one of two conflicting kingdoms described in the Gospel according to Matthew. Some scholars and commentators propose that the Gospel according to Matthew can be read as a conflict between two kingdoms. Uh, Herod represents the kingdom, one kingdom, and Jesus represents the kingdom of heaven. Now back in 1993, after the end of the Cold War, a political scientist by the name of uh, Samuel Huntington, he published an essay called uh, The Clash of Civilizations. And in that essay he proposed that the fundamental source of conflict after the Cold War would not be primarily ideological or primarily economic like that of the Cold War, but it would be a clash of civilizations of people with different languages, history, religion, customs, and institutions, and self-identifying with those things. There would be a clash of those things, of people who are involved or part of those civilizations. Now, in the case of the Gospel according to Matthew, the kingdom or civilizations are that of the Roman Empire and the elites of Jerusalem who collaborate with that empire, and the other kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew can be read in this way. And the source of conflict between these two kingdoms has to do with religion. It has to do with customs, institutions, and the subjective self-identification of people with them. But this clash of civilizations or clash of kingdoms which we have in Matthew is also about the values around which these kingdoms were organized. The kingdom of heaven has different values than that of the Roman Empire and much of our own day as well. In Matthew, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and the children are killed by Herod, uh, are caught in this, we might say, they're caught in the crossfire between these two kingdoms. And the result is not only the holy innocence murder, but that Jesus became a refugee. The United Nations Agency on Refugees defines a refugee as someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecutions, war, or violence. So Jesus' life was in danger 
So the angel told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt as a refuge from violence. Now that is something of which for us to be mindful when we talk and debate about refugees in our own day, but that's not the point, the main point that Matthew is trying to make. As important as that is, Matthew is trying to make something else clear. Two things, at least. One of the things that Matthew is doing here is to connect Jesus to the history of the people of Israel and present him as a continuation of that history. Uh, Think back to Genesis, where Joseph, another Joseph who had multiple dreams, uh, the one with the multicolored coat, uh, he was taken to Egypt. Uh, Jesus' ancestor Abraham sojourned in Egypt with his wife Sarah. The massacre of the children in today's, or what was omitted from today's lesson, is similar to that of Pharaoh's act in, 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 in Exodus, at the birth of Moses. And the people of Israel themselves were enslaved in Egypt. But even more than just connecting Jesus to, to, to Israel's history, more than all of that, we can also see this story of Jesus' movement from Bethlehem to Egypt and then to Nazareth as statements that say something about God. These statements, they make a statement about what God is doing. They confess not only Matthew's faith, but our faith in God, a God that is actively at work in the world. The story confesses that God was active in preserving the baby Jesus' life for his future ministry. The story of Jesus and his family fleeing death in Israel confesses that God was behind these movements. And Jesus just didn't flee you know, from something. His life was preserved for, for something. His life was preserved for something, the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that to this day is present among us. And that is our confession of faith, that God preserved Jesus' life so he could pursue his mission of establishing God's kingdom. That is a confession of faith we need to hear, and one that the world needs to hear at Christmas and in this first Sunday of a new decade. Because we don't know what this next decade will bring. As those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if we feel that sense of disillusionment that Douthout spoke of, our sense of disillusionment of the last decade, may we, in the coming year, coming decade, look for signs of hope and work for action, spiritual renewal, reform of our institutions. And if we are optimistic about the future, like Christoph was, maybe we can also be realistic in our expectations as we do tackle big problems. But above all, may we put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ and look for the manifestation of the kingdom of heaven around us. And may we be grateful for what we can of the last decade and with courage, resolve, and hope enter a new one. Amen.